James Romig and Mike Scheidt. Am I pronouncing your last name correct, Mike? You are. Thank you for joining me. And James, I will call you Jake moving forward, um, since that's what your, your close friends call you, and I'll pretend to be a close friend uh, for this hour. Um, J- uh, Jake, you and I did a podcast about a couple weeks ago about just your work, and you mentioned a, p- a new piece that you were writing for Mike, and I was totally ignorant to uh, Mike's work and Yab, but where Mike's when I started looking into it and where Mike's music and my childhood listening to Slayer and Sepultura and Pantera and Metallica, early Metallica, you know, just to be clear, um, <laughs> the the uh, I was I all of a sudden like my DNA started to like light up and I was like I felt like I was in my high school basement again and uh, I really got pumped about what I was listening to and um, James, if you don't mind, um, you can chime in here, but I, I'm curious, Mike, for you um, before we get into the like commissioned piece that James sent you a score. If I didn't know you, I would be like, how in God's name did the lead singer guitarist for Yob end up working on a contemporary guitar solo with James Romig in the weird new music world? Um, but I don't want to presume that your path was all that much different than me or James. So like, can you just tell me a little bit about Baby Mike and like, what got you into singing and playing music and, and eventually into you know Yob and, and the work that you all do? Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, I, I was uh, a toddler in the early 70s. And so the stuff that was just on the radio at that time, you know, when the radio was, uh, I don't know, there was, it, I mean, you're talking you know, early 70s, so it's the Beatles, Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. Steely Dan. Um, and where was this, Mike? Oh, where, where, where'd you grow uh, up? Eugene, Eugene, uh, Springfield, Oregon. Okay, all right. I mean, and Mason Williams was pop. Um, you know, there's things like that where uh, just the quality of the music was so good. And in my house, I, the music never stopped. Hmm. And so I've since, you know, my DNA has been around a radio that was on pretty much all day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And from there, I think in, you know, my early, my early teens, I discovered like heavy metal music and punk rock right around the same time uh, a friend of mine would make uh, mixtapes of vinyls he was getting and so it kind of the things that you're talking about slayer anthrax you know metallica but then i also had a friend who moved down to the bay area and who when i say a friend he was my cousin and he came back and he had spiked hair and you know safety pins through his ears and mm-hmm. an army, army jacket and did Kennedy's t-shirt and I'm like, what is this all about? So I got turned on to it all at the same time. And I think you're know, growing up in Springfield is pretty hick and you know, there's nothing wrong with hick. You know, there's lots of, lots of things that I like about, you know, the, that kind of life and living and being out around farms and things like that. But I was, I just felt like I was this, a city boy caught in, in the wrong environment and, and there was something that was just so rebellious and kind of powerful about heavy metal and punk and and what it did as a as a spirit within music. Hmm. And so that was what officially got me really excited about it. And then that is kind of led me on some you know, that's been a gateway to me for not only being a player and a performer and a singer, but it's also 
got me into places that that radically transformed my palate. Um, getting hired at a really high-end music shop because they needed somebody who could speak a language that they couldn't because they're all a bunch mm. of uh, country swing pickers. Mm. And so I was going to be the loud amp guy. Mm-hmm. But then I ended up just being um, so utterly fascinated with what they were doing as players. And everything that I do with Yob has been definitely an amalgamation of things like country swing and mm. and and country blues and punk and metal, but then also Joni Mitchell and Van Morrison and and you know more kind of contemporary sounds, but you know coming from a time where music was compositionally rich and deceptively simple. You know these were yeah yeah these were very uh, you know pretty in some cases like you listen to yes and things like that it's pretty profoundly composed music and mm-hmm. so i just kind of brought it all that and long form 70s ballads into punk and heavy metal with chord structures that i learned from learning how to play chet atkins tunes i mean I, uh, as you're saying all this stuff i mean I, again i'm thinking back to when i was in high school um there was there were certain camps that you were allowed to be in if you liked certain music and then like I remember I, I grew up again like playing Sepultura and and it dawned on me in the, in those times I was just like this is not simple music I mean the drummer for Slayer is objectively brilliant I'm just gonna yeah. say you know and one of the best live shows I've ever seen was Slayer at Bonnaroo I was just standing there like looking around being like is anyone else hearing this am I the only one or is this my first time hearing this which was probably the case. Um, but I also liked the Dave Matthews band in high school and I didn't tell anybody about it, you know, cause I was embarrassed. So my dad listened to 38 special and I loved Randy Newman, you know? And like, I just kept thinking like, well, Randy Newman's voice isn't that much different from the guy from Slayer. Like they're both kind of raspy and not on tune, but like it works for what they're doing. You know, I'm curious, like, as you're describing all this, was there any, did, did you experience any, I mean, anything like that as you were coming up? Like, because now it's almost it's almost rude to not say that you know heavy metal was also in like it's normal to say that heavy metal was influenced by Joni Mitchell <laughs> or or southern you know guitar picking but I would say thirty years ago I would have been laughed out of the room if I'd have said that. Well, I I mean I think metal on some level I mean it comes from the blues, mm-hmm. but it also comes from classical music. I mean, just there is when you're talking about the kinds of compositions that metal is. And so you look at the, and you know, it's also very much a misnomer that, that, that metal music is made by meatheads. It is very clearly not the case. And it is, and certainly there's some knuckle dragger music out there, (laughs) but, but it's also very difficult to write something simple and have it catch and have it be memorable. You know, there's, there's still, something to it that has some level of sophistication. But I think when you get into certainly the kind of metal that I'm into, it's, it's definitely, you know, focused and you know, you generally have players that, that on some level to sometimes astonishing levels know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, 
And they're pushing, 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 and taking everything in their environment from, you know, all the bands that you name to all these artists that you don't think how would how would these things mix, but they do. Mm-hmm. You look at all the bands in the world that are influenced, you know, culturally by where they're from, and they're incorporating polkas or they're incorporating, mm. um, you know, certainly neoclassical music, and they incorporate jazz and funk and and then but it remains metal mm-hmm. and so it just becomes richer and richer richer it's not a tradi- and there's such things right as old school this or old school that and and i think a lot of times it, it's kind of like the blues where it's like you know someone saying look i love this it has five notes i'm putting my stamp and signature on it and and that's why i'm i'm trying taking a tradition and trying to show you who I am within limitations. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's so many ways to approach it. And as far as like, you know, growing up and there being kind of like friction, like, you know, you don't see punks at metal shows or metal kids right, at right. punk shows or, or there'd be friction between those crowds. And, and certainly I experienced some of that, but I just, I couldn't hide that part of me. I also love new wins. You know, I grew up in, you know, like I said, you know, I was a teenager in the eighties and new waves all over the radio. And um, where I was from, there just weren't a lot of weirdos like me. And so I ended up hanging out with a lot of the new wave kids because um, I was not metal enough for the metal crowd. And I wasn't punk enough for a punk crowd. And, mm-hmm. and there wasn't really a lot of either. So just kind of the, the, the misfits banded up and, well, it always struck me as, I mean, the metal community now that I'm, I mean, again, I'm not super steeped in the, the metal traditions, but uh, if I'm, uh, and tell me if I'm misdiagnosing anything here. Um, I've, and then Jake, I'll get, we'll get to, I want to loop you in here just so you're not sitting there politely for the next hour. Um, the metal, I think because of the perception you laid out of like, you know, it's a bunch of meatheads or, you know, whatever. And sometimes the way metal musicians looked like the t-shirts are skulls and it's like i remember as a kid being like saw the first metallica t-shirt and i was like they worship satan like i didn't know any yeah i don't know i just assumed that was the case you know so that sort of puts a weird sort of conservative label on it or it feels conservative like don't touch it don't mess with it you know you it's too radioactive but but when you get inside of it you realize like it's a really progressive art form and it's changing all the time and metallica like for, for whatever you know, uh, uh, aesthetic things you may or may not like about them. Like they have progressed in wildly different directions over the last 40 years. And that, and they're one of the sort of main sort of figures in that community. But I would say the same about Sepultura. I'd say the same about Pantera. You can't listen to a, a Cowboys from hell and compare it to great Southern trend kill, you know, or you can, but you're, they've progressed. So what, Am I misdiagnosing anything within the community there um, in terms of that progressive nature of the music? Well, well, definitely not as far as it being a very consistently rich and progressive style of music. Though what I would say is the bands that you're referencing are, I'm not that big of a Pantera fan, fan but i mean in their day they were certainly uh, a powerhouse um but you know metallica or you know i tend to lean to early sepultura but but truthfully those bands are those are mainstream bands mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know the stuff 
where you really get into the nitty gritty of what metal is doing. Mm. It's, I mean, there, you know, there are bigger bands like, you know, Ghost or Dream Theater, I guess you could put in that category or, um, uh, certainly Opeth where you start getting into much more compositionally complex, um, multi-genre influence sounds but Mm -hmm. really the more underground you go the more you get into the actual nitty-gritty of what Mm -hmm. metal is currently doing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and it is vast and far out you have bands that are writing single song 60-minute pieces you have Mm -hmm. bands that are have four songs or 25 four song albums that are 18 to 25 minute songs. You have, um, you have drummers that can efficiently play at 320 beats a minute. You have things that are just so far out. And, and these are, and it covers a spectrum of, of approaches. And a lot of it really, you have to be very technically proficient Mm -hmm. to catch the eyes and ears of, of somebody who is steeped in that music. You can't be a slouch. You can't, mm-hmm. you have to be trained. You have to be a drummer that's practicing to a metronome religiously. You have to have certain kinds of chops to get people's attention. And I think that's where for people that look at it just on the surface, I think they really miss out on some very key things about what the, the ocean of heavy metal music is doing. And then on the other side of it, where it's like, it's not as the look is threatening, but then a certain kind of look isn't threatening. But then meanwhile, it's never going to be a guy with a bunch of patches on his vest that has access to the red button for the nukes. You know, it's like, like you know, the scariest people on this planet look like, you know, know. have a suit on. They're, they're, they're not scary looking, you know, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and then metal metal shows are very civil. <laughs> That's the, I mean, the, sorry, the thing I, yeah, there, it's like a weird democratic chaos that, um, is controlled, but also there's like levers of freedom within that where you can break up. Uh, and you mentioned the blues. The reason I, I sort of, um, say progressive and I, I don't want to imply that the blues isn't, but I have always felt like the, there's a speci- there are rules in jazz that yes, there are free jazz, there's bebop, there's different genres of jazz and there's different genres of um, you know, all this stuff, but I have always felt like you always butt up against a wall and it's like, nope, you, you played the four chord there. Shouldn't have been the four chord. That's not the rule. And with metal, I feel like, yes, there are rules, but it feels like the field just explodes a lot quicker as soon as somebody butts up oh, against yeah. one of those rules, you know, the, the rules, if there are rules, they're self-imposed. You know, if someone's writing a piece and they're saying, I'm staying within this key, this piece, mm-hmm. then great. Um, if you're a jazz musician and you're, you're changing keys, right. And you're like, okay, then basically if, if, if a jury of one of your peers says, why is it the four chord? You need to have an answer. Right, right, right. You know, and so that's like, you know, you're going to get grilled, you know, potentially. So that is different. In metal, not so much. It's just like, if it's good, it's good. Yeah, yeah. If it's inspired, it's inspired. Um, you know, because what we're really talking about here is a bunch of mathematics that, you know, you've seen players that are really technically proficient, but it feels like, okay, you're doing math. And then you see people that are really technically pr- proficient and you forget that they're playing. 
-hmm. there's something that happens where the muse part of music shows up and now it's more than math on an instrument yeah. you know now it actually is this living breathing thing both of them are using math both of them are using counting both of them are using all those things but there comes a moment where and i think that's the kind of music i mean of course people want to see people do crazy things like you're watching the olympics or something and and there's so many different ways to appreciate music um me personally i, I really when when things become music that's where i get excited it's like wow this something is emerging from these objects that would be inanimate otherwise and it becomes something beautiful that's uh, that's a great segue into sort of now i want to ask you uh well just i'm gonna ask you a dumb question do you read music mike i don't don't. awesome i love it um jake do you read music I do read music. Yeah, and yeah, you sent you sent me a sco- so and you wrote a, a piece bit. for Mike. You wrote a piece for Mike, and it is scored out on sheet music. And I sort of now want to like Mike. You can put earmuffs on, and I'm going to ask Jake here a question. Like, what when you? I'm trying to imagine like you know uh, whoever my favorite. Like well, I said, Dave Matthews, and I'll, I'll just use that as my example. Like the idea that I would ever reach out to Dave Matthews and be like, "Hey, bro, I would love to write you a piece." And that he would e- a even email me back, but let alone be down to clown with something like that. Um, let alone emailing somebody like Dimebag Daryl from Pantera when I was in high school and being like, "I have a question for you." Like that never would have crossed my mind as something I had poss- access to. You know, what was? You've been a fan of Mike and Yob for a while. Like, what? How did you get the balls up to just drop Mike? Did you email Mike? Did you send a carrier pigeon? Like, how did that work? And then Mike, I want you to tell me what was your first thought whenever you got the email from from Jake. Or whatever it was. Um, really quickly, we can talk about this later or not, as you choose. But you would think that the the notation would be a primary obstacle with the project, and that that's something that we both thought was going to be a big problem, and it turned out to not be nearly as big a problem mm. as we ever thought it would. Which isn't to discount all the effort that Mike had to put in to learn how to read it and how to how to put it together. But um, I wouldn't say that the finished product was really affected at all by the fact that we needed to come up with some sort of a some sort of a written language. But back to approaching Mike in the first place, I was a fan of Yob through recordings, and then I went to see them live in Cleveland in 2015, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, like Mike mentioned, the metal community is a friendly community. And I could sense that right away. And I could sense that this guy on stage who was happy to chat with fans before and after the concert, showing them stuff, I could tell that it was um, not that different from uh, a new music concert where people wander up onto stage and say, hey, I'd like to see the score. Or what's that preparation you did inside the piano? How does this all work? And performers generally being happy to to chat about it. So I got a sense that um, that Mike was a community pretty oriented, good dude. So I sent him a note on Facebook, actually. And um, I said something nice about the show, maybe asked a question or two about um, broad compositional ideas. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me that we must have something in common since we were uh, both creating longer pieces of music that audiences seem to be able to hang with. And I really liked what he did. 
And I guess maybe I was hoping that at some point he'd ask to hear something that I did. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I had a hunch that if I showed it to him, he might get a kick out of it. Mike, you get this message on Facebook and, you know, what was your, what was your first what was your first thought? Had you ever? Well, let me ask it. Had you ever been approached by, about something like something for something like this before? Or is this your first time getting reached out to by a, like a composer? Well, I mean, that was yeah. I've been hit up, uh, I guess, a lot in the in the past for collaborations. Um, certainly not at this this kind of scope. No, definitely not. And mm-hmm. uh, and Jake being you know the one and only. Uh, Jake Romig. So there's, you know, there, there's a unique flavor to our interactions, I think kind of from the beginning. And, um, and I think, you know, Jake wrote me a really nice message and I responded in kind and, and that started us talking and having a dialogue. And I think, um, I want to say, you know, after that show, because um, that uh, the next time we saw, or where we actually, you know, maybe properly like met in person was in Toronto, at another show, and and I think somewhere around in that time frame, and Jake, you can correct me here if I'm off, was around the time that this idea was birthed as to try to do something, and mm-hmm. and I think the the disclaimer that I threw out there to Jake is like, well. You know, I write and I have a sense of what I want to write and and I'm glad that you like it. To me, if you like it, that means, you know, that that, that I'm doing something that is working. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't read music. I don't do this. I don't do that. And, and so that was kind of the disclaimer at the beginning. But um, we just found, we just, if that, if, if that was a problem, we solved it. Well, what? Uh, let me ask you both this: like, what going into any collaborate? And I and I'm asking this because uh, maybe when I, I say we, to... also I mean Jake. Yeah, yeah no, no, I <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to. <laughs> and, I, I, and, I, and, I, and I worked on it. But yeah. No, and I I also want to. I just want to clarify too when I say like reached out to and worked with a reached out to by a composer. You're a composer. Like composers aren't just people who write things on paper. I just want to clarify that. Um, what for both of you? I mean, I know going into collaborations with people I just met or that I'm psyched about. Um, I have I have a deep, deep insecurity um, with my own skill set. I want people to like it. I also want to be able to to participate in the skill sets of the other people I'm working with in a way that's respected and respectful. Um, usually, those insecurities are sort of blown up as soon as you start to get in there and you get working. You realize it's it's all you're you're just worried about dumb bullshit. But like. What were the sort of initial insecurities that both of you had in sort of working on a project like this? And maybe, uh, Jake, I'll start with you. Like, yeah, you're pumped about the music, all these things. But, like, what were you – earmuffs, Mike. What were you afraid of? What were you afraid that was going to happen or might go wrong? My first thought was uh, after getting to know Mike, Mike is a very considerate person. And I like to think of myself as a considerate person as well. And so I knew that um, the last thing I wanted to do – was push Mike in a direction he didn't want to go because I knew that he'd be willing to try to go there um, for my sake. Mm -hmm. And so I think both of us were a little cautious, making sure that we didn't promise too much and that we didn't ask for too much. 
And so that, that involved a lot of talking back and forth about what can we do. And Mike continually reassured me, I want this piece to be very recognizable as uh, your kind of music mm-hmm. and the kind of compositions that you do. And then I would respond and say, and I want somebody to hear one chord and say, hey, that's Mike Scheidt playing guitar. So it took us a long time of chatting back and forth to figure out exactly how to do that. Um, but I think that was our goal all along. And I don't think either one of us wanted to overwhelm the other person with demands or, or concerns. But at the same time, we had to talk about what we wanted to do and what we were concerned about. What about you, Mike? I mean, you don't you don't yeah. strike me as a guy who has any insecurities. I mean, I've watched a few videos of you online with Yob, like live performances, and I'm just like, what is this guy? What could he possibly be afraid of? <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, I mean, in that world, I mean, in that regard, I don't I don't know when it started happening, but it's, there's kind of uh, an avatar that I kind of just kick into, and I wouldn't mm. say it's an act. It's more like, yeah. a, um, you know, when you're, when, you know, when you, when you see a bunch of, uh, football players in the huddle and they're like, this is what we play for. And, mm-hmm. and they get, get out there and they, they do it. Um, yeah, yeah. and so for me, I guess there's some version of that. And, uh, and I definitely have, uh, doubts and insecurities about playing live and my voice or how I'm particularly feeling that day, or if I'm, you know, just feeling a little off or whatever it is. And, and, you know, it's just like, okay, uh, that can be, that energy can be something that can push me in the right direction. Or if I put too much gas on it, it can become an obstacle. And so it's really trying to, you know, weak, those moments of weakness can actually be an incredible strength depending on what you do with it. And, yeah, so, um, I think, you know, in using that maybe as a segue into some of this stuff of my con- concerns of what I was, you know, and I mean this in the best way, but like what I was getting myself into, mm-hmm. because it was definitely, okay, it's an A standard, it's distorted guitar, I'm using my gear, okay, there's a lot of things that I'm very familiar with in this scenario. Um, however, a a piece of music that is incredibly precise, that is a palindrome that takes 2,730 beats to resolve, mm-hmm. that is a meticulous count where while themes repeat, their distances do not, um, and or at least not often. And um, and when you're inside that beast. it's easy to lose perspective. It took me a long time Mm. to wrap my head around it. And, and I think for people that know me or my guitar tone or whatever, they can listen to like a minute of this music. You know, like if they listen to the first minute and they might just think because of some of the tonality of the music or whatever, that it's me just kind of playing chords. Mm -hmm. But as this unfolds, you start to get a sense of the immensity of the, the composition yeah. and the complexity of how those those 
relationships between chords and the distance of them is so precise. And so, you know, for me, the challenge was, of course, I, I can't read music. Um, uh, and looking at it as it was notated on the paper and trying to trying to be precise with it in a way that was a little stiff mm-hmm. and and getting the, the information from Jake to be like, no, I want it to sound like you playing this and I want, you know, think, you know, if there's noise or things like noise or whatever, I mean, as long as the count is correct and you're playing the chord, I want all the chewy stuff that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want the, the bits of character and spice and, and the things that make it a living thing versus something that would be, you know, run through a MIDI program or something, you know, where you get it very precise. And so, um, but I think for, for my parts, the things that, that made me nervous, I just, Hey, I think Jake's right. I think he could have said, now I want you to be doing this, but I want you to be, taking a broomstick and while you're doing it, pushing somebody away as part of like a companion piece to the, and, and I would have tried to do whatever it was that he was thinking. Um, but I think for what was being asked of me, I just found solutions to it. I got, I have a good friend who's a uh, graduate um, from the, the school of music program and the university of Oregon. And I took, Mm -hmm. he's a very good guitar teacher. I took lessons from him Mm -hmm. for about nine months. And all we did was work on this piece, how to notate it. we got a tablature stamp for all the chord uh, voicings and, uh, and practice to a metronome for nine months. And I learned how to play it and count it and, and how to, you know, look forward at least a number of chords to be able to know what was coming and uh, and so it was just anything that would have been a fear for me and a doubt it was just a matter of getting the training and doing the rep, mm. getting the reps in there's a i mean as i uh jake i mean one of the questions that i always or one of the fears i have in collaborations and this happens all the time in so percussion um, but just personally too and if i'm commissioning a steel drum solo from somebody is I want them to not sound derivative of what I love, and they don't want me to sound derivative of what they love. Um, and w- when I was listening to uh, the complexity, the complexity of distance—that's the name. That's the title. Is that right, Jacob? Mm-hmm. Listening to that, and then going back to YouTube and listening to "Adrift in the Ocean." Am I getting that title correct, Mike? Yes. I kept going back and forth and being like that's the same goddamn chord that opens that tune and just kept going back and forth. And, but like, and then I would just, I would listen to, to like a minute into complexity distance and then a minute into a drift in the ocean and just see if I could keep tracking. And it goes, it goes its own way. I'm curious, how did you, was that something on your mind? Like you want to personalize the piece, Jake, so that Mike feels like it's his, but you also don't want Mike to play it and have people go, Mike, I love your new Yob tune. You know, like, like there is a stamp that you want it to be to Jake to be yours too. Like, how did you, were there ever a moment where you guys were chatting and you got to something and, and where you had to make a call and you're like, you know what, 
that's a no no that's a yob thing and this is or or I don't think we should do that because it's a little der- or blah 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 like were there any no no's or things that were the two of you actually vetoed something of the other person's ideas there wasn't anything specific uh, unless Mike remembers something that I don't but one thing that we did talk about a lot and Mike spent a lot of time making videos for me showing me things he can do and um, more specifically things he could do from certain positions so mm-hmm. if you want this cord I can also reach this, 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 and I can do these cool things. And a lot of them were uh, rhythmic and small level rhythmic things. Um, They were groovy. They were funky through a, you know, doom metal lens. But first of all, I was thinking about notation, keeping the notation simple. I wanted to have these long roaring chords and everything ended up being against a background pulse of quarter notes Mm -hmm. so any of these awesome little things that mike can do with um and sometimes it's left hand sometimes it's right hand and these really ingenious um uh, rhythmic kinds of things on a small scale they had to be wiped away and as much as i admire them and as much as i identify them with mike and with yob they didn't fit in this particular piece because this was something that I was thinking of as being much more black and white, much more oceanic. And I didn't feel like I could sculpt every, um, every little moment the way I would if I was writing him a three-minute encore piece mm. perform at the end of his Carnegie Hall recital or something like that. Because of the bigness of this, I think we had to um, keep it, keep the granularity large uh, so that the the gestures were all were all huge, and so uh, we missed out on some of those those great things that we were talking about. So maybe maybe the four and a half minute sequel in twenty thirty seven uh, when we're old men, maybe that will incorporate some of those amazing things that he can do on the the small scale rhythms. Yeah, Mike, was there, did you have to get out your line item veto at any point and? Um and no. push back on anything or um no no nothing like that i mean i think the more the more that i climbed into the piece because i just didn't have like i didn't have enough experience with the piece yet to see it early on um as where I ended up with it. I, I just saw it early on. I saw it as like, Oh God, you know, this is, mm-hmm. it's not that it's technically difficult to play though. I think that but it's very, very accurate and precise and, um, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and use the word now ingenious, ingeniously, uh, in, and I think uh, uh, a very correct sense as far as how how those distances were composed to work the way they do not just rhythmically, but also melodically. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's not a single thing remotely out of place. Every, mm-hmm. there's no fat. 
Mm. And it's, it's an idea that's committed to you and it's, it's like you put the, the sequence into the computer and it goes through the sequence and it works itself out and comes out to the other side. And, um, and so it was just really profound to me to climb into it and do it. And there's no part of me that was thinking, oh, this isn't me or this isn't something I can do or this, oh, I got to veto this. I was just more like, oh, God, this is going to be a lot. And, and then I just made up my mind to, to do it. Well, the, you know, Josh, yeah, go ahead. Um, you're probably familiar with that Steve Schick Perspectives of New Music article about learning bone alphabet, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where he talks about when you learn something really slowly, as opposed to really quickly, you internalize it more. And when you internalize it more, therefore, it sounds more like uh, an improvisation on the spot mm-hmm. than some sort of a superficial reading. So looking back on it, when Mike and I were talking about doing this project, we said we wanted to make the recording first. And I've mentioned this before, that we're, we're doing this in sort of a pop way as opposed to the classical way. Instead of Mike performing this for a couple of years, then we make the recording and put it out. We're putting the recording out, and now we're talking about live performances in the future or, or whatever, but the recording came first. But it didn't, because Mike spent so much time learning it and working on it with a teacher this nine-month gestation period um, allowed him, and I, I think what you're saying, Mike, is that you you really learned the piece as opposed to just dashing it off. So you knew what was inside it, and you started to feel like it was yours. And I think that comes through in the recording, and I think it's necessary because if it was, uh, you know, there's I'm sure there's a guitarist out there who could probably just grab the sheet music and play this thing down. Um. It it wouldn't be it wouldn't be right and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be magical, but it, it could be done and it could be accurate. So the very fact that, that Mike really had to take apart a lot of things and put them back together, I think we hear that in the recording, even though it's the first time probably the first time you ever played it straight through, right? Was that your first marathon, Mike? Or did you ever sit in the practice and do the whole thing for an hour? I I got to the place where I could play it through from beginning to end and feel like I was not sweating. Probably it was probably only for a, a couple weeks before the recording, you know, and I would just go through pages or go through a couple pages and just go through and then notate out the difficult spots or the difficult jumps. And, uh, cause there are a few tricky, uh, voicing jumps in there, uh, for me anyway. And, uh, and so, is just putting it together bit by bit over time and really learning, you know, for as much long form as I do, you know, your piece is a different kind of long form than what I'm used to. And, and so to be able to count and stay on count and, you know, at the 10 minute, 20 minute, 30 minute, 40 minute, 50 minute mark, it was a challenge. Uh, it's a definite challenge. So two weeks before, but the thing that was nice about that, I think is, is, I don't know. I think that just a little bit of that tension is really not a bad thing. You know, I mean, I love to watch a player who knows what they're doing and they're in the pocket, but they're also flying by the seat of their pants just a little. And that just creates for really interesting moments. And, uh, um, you know, certainly I, I anticipate to be able to play the piece with even greater command over time. Um, but uh, I think it was when it was recorded was a really 
good time and a good moment. And yeah, I could do it and I could stop and I could see where the mistake was and we could fix it and get right in there. And I knew it. That was the thing. It was kind of amazing by the time we recorded it. I was like, wow, okay. Mm-hmm. I do actually know this behemoth, this beautiful yeah. behemoth of oceanic uh, <laughs> vast scope. Well, the um, I have two sort of uh, two more questions, and one is on the notation tip, uh, and then one is sort of just on how. Well, let me ask the second one first. How how has the piece been received by the doom metal community, Mike? Like in terms of really great. Like, have you played it at shows? Like where where have you performed the no. piece? I haven't performed it anywhere yet. Um, okay, but in in the you know the doom metal slash metal world, um, they're used to extremity. You know, they're used to things that are, um, that could be a difficult listen and you climb into it knowing that it is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not uncommon to have bands, you know, do big, long, single pieces. Um, certainly, you know, Sleep has done that with their uh, their Dope Smoker song, uh, the 64-minute song. And, mm-hmm. um, and then Sun is very popular in the doom circles and that's Mm -hmm. essentially drone composed Mm -hmm. drone and they've done it for album after album after album. So there's lots of, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, lots of launch points in metal for someone to listen to this and go, Oh yeah. You know, and what, and, and on the notation to chip tip, um, Jake, the, this is something like the ethics around notation, and I think you brought you brought up one ethical concern of yours, which is, and when I say ethics, it's not like someone's going to die if, if you know Mike isn't the one playing the piece. But there is a sort of ethical worry you have of like it's not going to be exactly as I intended it because Mike and I worked on this, and I know Mike's music. I know we talked about where his hands can and can't go, and then I know, but you still codified it in a way that other people can pick it up and play it down the road. Um, I'm curious for you both to answer the question of like, what are the ethics for you around writing, th- writing things down or what are the advantages or disadvantages? I mean, the advantage is that a lot more people know about Mike in a world that they wouldn't otherwise know about because your name's going to be on a score and they might be like, who's Mike Scheidt? They'll Google that and then they'll learn about Yob and then they'll learn about Sano and they'll learn about, you know, that, that can go. And only because some kid saw a sh- piece of sheet music at a percussion conference or something and was like, what's this? You know, um, on the flip side, your music could be like if all of Yob's music was scored out. Let's say we sent your albums to a transcriber and they actually codified it in the way that Jake did with this piece. That would be kind of, I would love to see what your music looks like scored out like that because I bet it wouldn't look much different. Problem is, is there's going to be a group of high school kids who are like, oh, we're going to play that Yob chart and it's not going to be exactly like you all intended it. So, like, is that a concern that you should be worried about? Does that matter? Um, what are the effects of that? And what would have been the difference if you'd have just taught it to Mike by rote and that's all? Like, why did well, you score it out? I think for uh, something of this length, teaching it by rote would have been pretty nightmarish. And um, because it's so constructed... Yeah, but Jake, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. It sounded like Mike had a pretty big nightmare trying to learn it, so maybe you could have shared in the nightmare... <laughs> Yo, he had to go take true. lessons for nine months. You could have shared in that nightmare a little bit with true, him. I'm true, true. Joking. I'm joking a little bit there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it needs to be written out. Um, 
even though this is this is a lot like um, come out or it's gonna rain, you know the Steve Reich loop pieces. This is literally three strands of music moving at slightly different speeds, going all the way through and coming back on the other end. And I think it deserves a score. It's interesting to look at. It's you can. If I, I still haven't done this, if I'm on an airplane sometime or I, I've got a lot of time to kill, it'd be interesting to write in the the number of beats in between every attack and watch the watch the uh, the waves go in and out mm. as the piece goes. I'm sensitive to them from listening, which sounds ridiculous. I wrote the thing, but after only a few moments of listening to the recording. I'm starting to follow other paths. You know, I, I know how the forest was built, but I'm still enjoying just wandering through in a random way. But I, I think the score is important um, to differentiate it from from something else. I mean, if uh, if somebody asked Mike, "Did you just improvise this? Did he give you six chords and say play these six chords for an hour?" I think Mike would very proudly say, "Absolutely not." There's a real structure to this and, and so on. And, and that's just what it is. Mm. And that's what we set out to do. So the score is not necessary for somebody to listen to it and enjoy it. But for me to listen to it and enjoy it, if I weren't uh, involved in the making of it, I would like knowing that it's there. There's something special about knowing that this is a process going on and that this isn't just something that happened. This is something that was planned. Yeah, I mean, for me too, a lot. Some of the ethical things around. I mean, I think about it in the context of the steel band world. Like, there's a lot of music that's written every year that just disappears. I mean, it's and often it's not even like video recorded. So, like for me, historically speaking, there's cultural history being lost every year because it's not written down. Yeah, I don't see Yob any differently than I would a steel band. That's cultural history. There's an art form being made that if it's not written down needs to then be survived on a record or a videotape or something. And I would worry that 300 years from now, people would be like, Yab who? Just because it wasn't written down on Sibelius or something stupid. And so like that, but that's an ethical concern I have that I, I don't need to be right on that. But I'm curious, Mike, is that like, is anything I'm saying registering in terms of like, like I think the way you're making music is actually the way most of the world makes music. You know, and I'm just bothered that it's not written down, and people 700 years from now won't be able to go to the library and pull out, you know, <laughs> a, a, a Yob tune off the shelf if they want. Yeah, I think, you know, it's always been a little bit of a daunting idea, in this, you know, for the very reason that uh, I personally wouldn't know how to approach notating out our music, and I would have to do, a, you know, quite a bit of work to even approach it but you know to your point there are people that do that and and it is something that we get asked for um mm. and and there is i mean there are people that do yob covers mm -hmm. and and my style is is you know look i'm not you know i'm uh i'm not some crazily skilled player technically um but the way that I've put things together is weird. And, and so when people will actually see the band, sometimes they'll be like, Oh wow, I thought that was two guitars, but it's just one, you know, and you're able to do all the things as a single player, which is the country blues thing, right? Alternating bass, you have melodies, right hand technique. It sounds like a lot more than one thing. 
Um, and so, so I do that, but then by hearing other people do their interpretations of it that are clearly not the way it would be notated because mm-hmm. they're trying to do their best approximation of the thing. Right. I get really fascinated by that mm-hmm. personally. I mean, I, 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 the way I feel it, this would be true whether it was out there written down or not is you put music out into the world. I mean, on some level you get ownership, like, Hey, you know, you can't reproduce that, mm-hmm. but you know, you can't repackage that and say it's yours or whatever. But mm-hmm. I mean, aside from that, I mean, music has a life of its own. It, it, mm-hmm. it completely eclipses its, eclipses its writer and becomes something that, that is owned by other people very, very intimately and personally. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Iron Maiden doesn't get a say on what my favorite record of theirs is. They wrote it, their lyrics and everything, but they sent it out into the world. And when I get my hands on it, they'll send it out, they'll put out 20 records and one is mine or two are mine. And that's another business, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, um, and, you know, I'm sure speaking of Iron Maiden, there's lots of stellar Iron Maiden covers. I'm sure there's some pretty horrible ones out there. Um, there's probably some really inventive and interesting, like, oh, I never thought that would work in a, you know, a New Orleans jazz band. But look, listen to the Troopers through a jazz band. I mean, there's so many different ways that things can be reimagined, and I would n- not really ever want to micromanage that. You know, mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's not personal. That's other people. Jake, go ahead. You look like you were going to chime in. Well, I remember, Mike, you asking me um, about the big piano piece. Mike knows Ashley, my wife, who, um, who's the person who recorded still and has given 25 or 30 performances of it. But Mike either saw on YouTube or somewhere that somebody else had performed the work. Mm-hmm. He said, how does that work? What's, what's it like when somebody you're not married to is performing the work? Is this somebody who, who you taught it to? Or, and I said, no, it's, not, it's somebody I don't even know. Um, who did a great job with it. And that's when Mike said, you know, every once in a while I hear somebody covering one of our tunes in a bar or whatever, but that's a really interesting experience um, because we are a couple of composers and we spend a lot of time, especially when we're getting to know each other, talking about what we have in common. But this is a huge difference where I can just ship mine off and and somebody else does it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that we talked about a lot with our piece too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mike asking me, how do you want this? And Mike saying, don't care. (laughs) <laughs> it's yours now. And that, that was a, that was an interesting difference. The, well, like, it, the conversations. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to me. I'm just sort of clocking my own progression here of like trying to highlight the progressive nature of doom metal and metal in general. And then at the end being like, I think we should write it all down and conserve it all. Like, <laughs> you know, so I'm just calling BS a little bit on my, my approach here, well, but you know what the difference is? There's a lot of people that would want that. Yeah. Really, I, I've had people ask for songbooks regularly. It's it's a matter of time, so yeah, I, th- I think there's room for all of it. <laughs> Sorry, Jake, I interrupted you. Well, it just seems to me that the um, the tradition of metal is not so much to dwell on its history. I mean, obviously, mm. you talk about how great Black Sabbath is, but you talk about how innovative Black Sabbath was. And what they what they did, and there's that tradition of innovation. And you talked about jazz, and we could talk about classical, capital C classical, or orchestras, or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
as spending a lot of time worrying about the preservation of what was. And I'm not an expert in jazz and I'm not even an expert in the orchestra world, but this is an impression that one could get from those worlds, that they're spending a lot of time thinking about how do we keep this pure? How do we keep the old stuff preserved? Whereas in metal, there's this constant wiping away while respecting the past. You're not really respecting the past unless you're doing something crazy. And I think that's probably true of the contemporary music that you and I, Josh, love um, from our tradition of modernist music. You don't spend, you, you love the right of spring, but you complain when an orchestra plays, plays the right of spring. So it's over a hundred years old. Mm. Let's get something newer in there. Mm. So I think well, that's one place where the metal world and our modernist uh, art music, concert music world, whatever you want to call it, are definitely in lockstep. Well, and I think the, the, the sort of, the uh, you know, if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, you don't think it happened, you know, like that sort of a, that sort of, uh, uh, evolutionary trick that we play on ourselves often. Like Bach wasn't making music in much of a different context than the way you're making it, Mike. Like Bach had 23 kids and had a gig every Sunday and he, he invented the lead sheet basically because it figured bass because he needed to, to write a new mass every damn Sunday, you know, he had, and like it was chaos and he went in, some things didn't work. And like, he was shouting out th- like Mozart, same thing, sitting at the piano, yelling out things and changing Mahler. Like they were all, and it's only now because of what I was suggesting, the codification and writing everything down that we now are like, there's a way to play Mahler. And if you don't, you, 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 you sort of go from that, uh, that, that mainstream view, you're doing it wrong. So, there's an ethical concern there too. Um, unfortunately, I got to go to another meeting, and this has been fascinating. And I would love to just like keep talking with you guys all day. Um, I want to just thank both of you um, for modeling. I think something I tell my students all the time um, that so talks about master classes. Drop a line, and when you drop the line, send a line back, even if the answer is no like respond and be a person in the world. And Mike, I'm really grateful that you responded to to Jake and Jake. I'm really grateful that you had the guts to reach out to Mike. I know that seems like, uh, you know, that you guys have known each other for a while. Like, but I think for students who are trying, who who look at me or look at you all and like, I want to do what Yob does. It's like, well, you know what Yob does? They respond to emails. They also do do metal. They also respond to Facebook messages. Like, and they all yeah, anyway. So just to say thank you for for demonstrating that, and um, I really hope that folks. I hope other guitarists pick this up. And Mike, I hope other guitarists call you and want to take lessons with you on the piece, because that will happen. Hopefully, somebody's going to call you because somebody's going to want to be like, "How the hell did Mike finger this?" Because I can't do that, and that's the circle of life, I guess, with composition and music. So. All that said, um, one final thing, uh, Jane, uh, Jake's. Where can folks find the piece if they want to check out a recording of it, and if they want to buy the score, where can they do that? And then, Mike, where can folks find out more about Yob and what you're what you're up to other than playing Jake's piece? The new piece is available at all the places where you where you buy CDs, uh, Amazon, Bandcamp. Um, it's probably best to buy it directly from the record label if you want to support. Um, Contemporary Music, New World Records, it's available there. You can download um, the, uh, the Lossless version there or on Bandcamp. It will be available on Spotify and Apple Music and streaming services, uh, I think, a week from now or something like that. But in the meantime, meantime go buy it or go, go listen to it on Bandcamp. And if anybody's interested in the score, that's actually for sale on my website. 
which is uh, just jamesrummick.com. Excellent. Mike, where can we find out more about what you're up to these days? Well, we have a website. It's uh, yabislove.com. And uh, um, we also are on Instagram and Facebook and uh, pretty readily available there. Um, and uh, those are probably the best ways to, to find out. Um, and we've, you know, we've been through a lot of different, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, record labels and things like that over the years. So, you know, our discography is kind of spread out, but in the internet age, that is uh, nary a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. Google search or two will take you pretty much everywhere you want to go. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your generosity of spirit and, and, and everything here. I hope you stay healthy and safe and I will look forward to the next project you all do together. I hope it, I hope, I hope to see uh, round two at some point in the near future, but stay healthy and I hope to cross paths soon. Nice to meet you. Thanks everybody. Good talking to you guys. Likewise. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, DunleavyPans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.